All right, well, you're in for it today. Um, yeah. Today's going to be a different kind of message. It's going to be very academic. So if you came looking for a Joel Olstein-esque, you're not going to get it. Um, I, <laughs> I, have been, I have been trying to pick the moments where, you know, we, we can go deeper into uh, the truth of God's scripture. One of the hills we die on is to seek truth. And uh, the challenge is to always kind of circle back around because I know some of you, you're new on your, your journey. And so I want to be able to bring you along, but I also want to provide something that maybe for people who have been uh, in, in on their journey for a little bit longer, I want to really get some depth. And so I've been striving to do that. And uh, today is going to be one we're going pretty deep, so you may want to catch what you can, uh, study on your own, and see where it all leads. Holy Spirit, speak to us, teach us, show us things through your word. Lord, even the, the message today is very academic, but I believe that you can, uh, you can move beyond information. And so my prayer is that you would visit each person here and that you would be exactly what we need according to our circumstances at the moment. In Jesus' name, amen. I became a Christ follower when I was 14 years old in the church I was part of. It did, it did several things well, but it had some issues looking back, as all churches do, right? This church has issues. Um, and, and one of those issues was that we leaned a little heavy towards an obsession with the end times. Um, I remember in high school, youth group, uh, we actually took time to study the prophecies of a cat named Nostradamus. Nostra flippin' Damus, right? We couldn't even keep it within a biblical framework, so we were just reaching for everything. Like, next, it was called the psychic hotline or consult a magic eight ball. Like, I don't know what was next. And so there, there was kind of this, this thing of trying to figure out the end times and kind of immerse yourself in it and... That meant that my teen years, early in my faith, I spent way too much time in front of the television watching what I call the doomsday prophets on TBN. And uh, 15, 14, 15 years old, you know, these, these guys who have entire ministries built on deciphering the, ap uh, the apocalyptic text of Revelation. One guy's name, he was Doug Clark, and one one Saturday morning, he was way too enthusiastic. And midway through his show, he declared with great fervor that the Antichrist was already on the earth, the mark of the beast would soon be revealed, and to get ready because the last days are upon us. And no joke, at 15, he literally scared the hell out of me. Like, I, I was like, like whatever, whatever was left in me that shouldn't have, it came out of me. And I went back every week uh, expecting the end of the world. Now, needless to say, it was a pretty good childhood, okay? <laughs> pretty good. Now, my wife, she's a pastor's kid, preacher's kid, and uh, she leans toward the rebellious side. And whenever she hears stories like this, she likes to ask, did you have any fun in high school? Like, none? And I'm like, did I have fun? <laughs> no, I did not. It was prayer, Bible studies, and end of time fear. That, that, that's what my entire life was, right? Um, back in the day, doomsday messengers were, were nothing new, right? The 20th century had a plethora of them, especially in the 70s and the 80s. 
Some of you may remember this, but it was known as the terminal generation because the thought was that this is where it ends, right? Jesus comes back, this generation, uh, uh, and the end of times begins, and we are ushered into eternity. The Soviet Union was seen as uh, the designated key player in biblical times, and when the, the, the Union fell apart, it kind of shifted over to uh, Iraq with uh, Hussein reconstructing Babylon, and, and, and right, there's, there's always been this, this kind of undercurrent. Well, eventually I decided that I was going to go to the source. And so 16 years old, decided I'm, I'm just going to read Revelation for myself. So I got a study Bible and I opened it and about five chapters in, I seriously thought, was the guy who wrote this high? That's what I thought. Because visions like this require some really good peyote. That's what I'm thinking. Some of you from the 60s, you experimented with psychedelics, you know, right? You've had visions, you still haven't told anyone. I, I know, I know. And so I was like, I don't, like, this is way out there for me. And so I gave up halfway in. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I went back to listening to the Hal Lindsay's and the Doug Clark's and the Jack Bam Impies of the world. And um, I remember the first time that I heard someone say that Jesus could come back within the next 30 days. I mean, some people made some really bold predictions. As a 15-year-old, I went deep into prayer. I'm serious. But it wasn't for the reason you might think. Because at 15, I was a good, holy, pure Christian boy. And my prayer was, Jesus, can you hold off long enough so I can find a wife and at least have a honeymoon? That was my honest prayer. You can fill in the blanks why I wanted that. After several years of watching these, you know, the doomsday prophets, one day I took a step back and I realized, these guys have a 100% failure rate as of today. And so I was like, I don't think... This, this kind of, this genre of ministry right now is deserving of, of my time, right? They kept saying the same thing, but they just were pushing back the date. And some of you, you, you remember some of this stuff, right? If, uh, if you were around and a Christ follower during the Y2K scare, right? you remember everything that was coming out. This was it. The end of times is coming. And to get ready, um, the Trinity Broadcast Network had, had an entire show that was pre-recorded in case the rapture happened, which they believed was going to happen, and that they had a pre-recorded show that would explain to people where they are and what happened. And in my question, I'm thinking, like, who on staff did they think was going to be left behind to press play? <laughs> I, I don't know, but those are the things that I think. 1992... Evangelist and president of the Family Life Radio, Harold Camping, he published a book 19, uh, called 1994, uh, where he predicted the end of the world would be that year. When that didn't happen, his next prediction was May 21st, 2011. When that date passed, he declared that his math was off, and he pushed it back to October 21st, 2011. And my thought is, man, if you miss that many times, get off the field. That's what I'm thinking, Right? Remember the 2012 Mayan calendar scare? Like the, the calendar stopped, that's it. We don't get any further than 2012. And then we fast forward to 2020 in the shadow of a pandemic and Christians around the world were a little shaken. Like what's happening and is this it? And some of you asked me the question, Pastor, what are your thoughts? What, what's going on? Is, there, is this God's judgment towards the world? Are we in the last days? Is this the end? Should, should I make my next house payment or should I put it all on black, right? I mean, how, where is this leading? And many, many thought it was the beginning of the end. Maybe some still do. 
Some going as far as to making claims like the COVID vaccine was the mark of the beast. Um, you know, Revelation 13 says if you take the mark, whatever that mark is, that you are clearly doomed, you're an apostate, you have irreversibly abandoned and renounced Jesus and your faith. I mean, this, this was, there were segments of the Christian community that this is what they were pushing. As a side note, I am triple vax, and I can assure you that Jesus and I, we tight, okay? Let me just say that. So, dude, on that idea of the mark of the beast, which has always had, you know, this, this undercurrent of, of what it is, some of you may remember this, that when barcodes came out, you know what makes it so quick to get through the grocery store line? Oh yeah, there were Christians like, that's it, mark of the beast. I'm not buying any food that has a barcode on it. And now you're like, it, it, it's the only thing that makes the Walmart checkout any, you know, halfway reasonable. And so let, let's consider something. Do we believe, like whatever the mark is, do, do we believe that the grip God has on us is so fragile that we could accidentally take a vaccine and we would, God would eternally lose his grip on us. Like, is, is that what we think? Like, God is that small? Like, if I, if I bought a can of soup that had a barcode, God's like, mm, I know you just got it for lunch, but yeah, you're out. <laughs> what I'm saying is, come on, we, 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 we read some things and then we, we pass it through this, this theology that is, is clearly off ground. Like, our God is big enough to not put something forth like this that we would accidentally fall into. So there, there, there was this stir that was going around a couple years ago, and it'll flare up again, you know, regardless of, of, of what is happening. But let me just ask you this. Do you think we're living in the last days? What, is, what does that mean to you? I'm, I'm asking for a friend. Now, my opinion is, is yes, we're, we're, we're living in the last days, but not for the reason that you might think. It, it's not because there are world events that are lining up with prophecy and scripture. That may or may not be happening. My reason for saying, yes, we're living in, in the last times is because that's what scripture writers of the New Testament believed, right? That, that Jesus, when he ushered in, when he inaugurated his kingdom, right, when, when his earthly ministry was done until he returns, that is the last days. And so, yes, we are in the last days. Should you expect an apocalyptic turn that is coming soon, right? The, the things we read in, in, in Revelations and things like that. Should you expect something like that occurring soon? That all depends on what lens you read the text through. And that's what I want to talk about. And it's going to be very academic. But some of you, over the next two, three weeks, will leave here thinking, I finally understand it. And my hope is to give you some tools so that you can understand it, so that you can build your theology on what's called eschatology, the study of end, end times, the study of the end, end things, that you can build that on your own. So check in, stay with me. Uh, side note, I thought I could get through all of this message in one week, and I got through one point in this message. So it's going to be a lot of information coming at you. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to jump into the most misunderstood and confusing book in all of Scripture. Revelation 1.1, the revelation, the apocalypsis, Greek, from Jesus Christ, apocalypsis. It's the unveiling, it's the uncovering, or get this one, it's the to reveal. We're famous, so you didn't know that, right? <laughs> and so it, it is the unveiling or the uncovering of the future, of, of things to come from 
the very first word we're told what the text is. It's the big reveal of what is in the future. Now, some background. Revelation chronicles a vision that was given to John, and most scholars say it was the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. There are some that would deviate from that, but we're going we're to go with the traditional view that it is uh, the, the writer of the Gospel of John. First century A.D., uh, the Apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos. It was uh, a Roman penal colony of, of sorts, and um, it is um, on the southwest coast or the west coast of Turkey. John's crime was practicing Christianity. And while he was on Patmos, the Holy Spirit seized him, uh, and he had this vision uh, of sorts, and he was told, write on a scroll all that you see, and then send it to the churches, Revelation 1.1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. Now, the vision centers around a scroll with seven seals, and then it moves to seven trumpets, and finally to seven bowls, and all of them are connected to the apocalypsis, right? The, the revealing, the uncovering, or the unveiling of the things to come. Right, this, this is the study of eschatology, the, the study of, of last things, what Scripture teaches about it. Now, within this framework, we're, we try to answer some important questions. We try to answer questions like, where are we in relation to the end timeline? Right? Everybody kind of wants to know that. Like, wh where do we fall? Uh, we want to ask questions like, well, what is this thing called the Great Tribulation? Hey, and when does it occur? Did it already occur? How long does it last? Hey, Mike, do me a favor. Would you turn up the air, put it at 71, please? Thank you. Uh, how long does it last, and, and who does it affect? We, we want to look at things like the rapture, and when does it occur in relationship to the tribulation? Does the rapture occur pre-tribulation, before the tribulation? Is it mid-tribulation, like we're going through half of it? Is it post-tribulation, like buckle up, we're going through all of it? Or here's another view, there is no rapture. Right? And we're going to talk about that as well and how Scripture was possibly misinterpreted. We need to answer questions like, what is the millennium? Is the, is the thousand-year reign of Christ, is it figurative or is it literal? And here's the big question that we try to answer. See, give, me, give me a general idea of when Jesus is coming back. Right, like No one knows the day and time, but we, we'd, we'd like to kind of have an idea. Was it before the millennium? Is it during? Is it after the millennium? And what are the signs that we can expect surrounding the events of his return. Now, the, the language of Revelation is apocalyptic in nature, meaning it, it's meant uh, to be shocking, right? Uh, it, it's, it's an apocalyptic genre in Scripture. Knowing what genre you're reading helps you interpret the genre you're reading. You wouldn't read a comic book the same way that you would read Time magazine. They're different genres, right? And so, so, so the, the apocalyptic genre in Scripture, it's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be hyper, uh, hyperbolic. Uh, the, the text is full of Im imagery of beasts and dragons and plagues and scorched earth and lakes on fire and a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. It's meant to be jarring, and it's meant to grab your attention. Now, we read it, and we think, 
what the what? Like, but understand that its first century audience uh, would have been familiar with apocalyptic writing. It was common and ordinary during that time, somewhere around 200 BC. So, so this idea of this genre, they would have taken it in. They were like, oh yeah, we, we, we get what's happening. So understand the text of what we're reading. So now, where do we start when trying to make sense of this book? We're going to start with the essential storyline that forms out of the text of Revelation. Now, there's numerous ways that you can build a storyline. Uh, some of the more detailed nuances depend on what lens you use to interpret the text. So we're going to use this basic storyline here. Uh, it, it, the storyline starts with seven letters to, or uh, seven letters to seven churches. They are addressed to the seven messengers of the churches throughout Asia Minor, throughout you know, the Turkey area. And then chapter four quickly shifts to a vision of Jesus who is seated upon the throne. And so John has this vision of Christ. It's Revelation 4. And the one who sat there, Jesus, had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. It's just an ordinary day at the office. Right? Now, it then moves on to the, the seven seals and seven trumpets, which announce what is to come, and seven bowls, which represent the judgment that is being poured out, right? And this is where things get ugly and things get scary in the text. Later in the timeline, there is a period of judgment leading to the end of evil and ultimately leading to the new creation, where God sets everything right, we win, God rewards the overcomers. Now, this is a simplified timeline, I agree. There's all kinds of things that we're not going to touch on for sake of clarity, like the Lamb's army and the two witnesses and what is the, 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 exactly is the beast and the fall of Babylon, right? I'm trying to put some tools in your hand that you can do some research yourself. So we know the purpose of the text, right? The purpose of the text is the apocalypse. It's the unveiling of things to come. Now, this is really important, right? It's looking to the future, the question is, how far into the future was it looking? Was it looking into the future as it pertains to the original readers? Or was it looking 2,000 years into the future and now applies to us? Though there's no debate that the, the, the original text was forward-looking, the debate comes into how forward was it looking, right? It all depends on the lens by which you read and interpret the text, and we're going to get to all of that. Now, in the middle section of our timeline, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, uh, it's known as the tribulation, the great seven-year tribulation. And so now we ask the question of, well, when is that? Who does it affect? Are all questions that, that, that we want to answer. But then there's one more key component that we gather from the text, that needs to be added to our timeline. It's spoken of in Revelation 20, and it's this thing called the millennium. But not this millennium, all right? That millennium would be awesome, all right? If that's what we got in heaven, there would be no one in hell. We'd all be going for the millennium falcon, all right? So on our timeline, the millennium is a reference in Revelation 20 that talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ. All right, so we have our timeline. In the middle, we have this idea of the tribulation. Track with me. And then, and then somewhere in there, we have the millennium. 
a thousand year reign of Christ. Now this is where it will begin to get tricky. The lens by which you read and interpret revelations will determine how you look at this timeline and where you take the timeline from here, right? And there's not one lens, there's at least four lenses by which you can read uh, the, the apocalyptic writings, and it changes the interpretation and how you view the book. Each of them adjusts portions of the timeline and determines how we answer the question about the millennium. Right, this is going to be a pivotal thing in, in the talk. Is the thousand-year uh, thousand reign of Jesus, is it literal? Is it figurative? When is it? Uh, or when was it? Or are we in it? Is it a future thousand-year reign? Or are we in the thousand-year reign today? And some of what you find out may, may surprise you. Now, what do you do with the basic timeline? From here, again, it's largely going to depend on what, which of the four lenses you use to interpret the text. And we have four of these lenses. There's a futurist, idealist, preterist, and historicist. Some of you, these will lead you in different directions. Now, track with me. Catch what you can. If you're really interested in this, shoot me an email. I'll send you my notes, right? So, so, so you have it written down. You can take photos of the screen, whatever, whatever you need to do. Here's the lenses, the filters by which we can read the text. The first is known as a futurist. If you read Revelation through a futurist lens, then, which is the most commonly held view, futurists see the book as prophecy predicting the future. So it's looking forward. So today, if you read the book of Revelation through a futurist lens, you are looking forward to things that are still to come, right? It, it, it's a forward facing idea. Everything is looking forward. We're, we're, we're looking to future events that have yet to happen. But that's not the only lens, right? There's also a historicist lens, and that is the idea that Revelation is just an overview of history from the inception of the church to the Middle Age or to the end of the age. Right? And that, and that it, it's really just God saying uh, that, that it's history laid, it's, it's a prophecy of sorts laid over history, and you can kind of track what's going on with the various churches in the various ages. Now, the majority of Protestant reformers in the 1500s, 1600s, uh, they held to this view. Um, they viewed Revelation as a, as a prophetic survey or analysis of church history. And so as they looked at where they were at in church history, they would look at the, the, uh, 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 the text of Revelation. They would drop that over history. And that then allowed them to make the interpretation and argue that the pope of their day, which is Pope Leo X, was the Antichrist. And they were not shy about declaring that. All right? Um, now, this view um, has kind of fallen out of favor uh, within a period of time, we'll kind of talk about that as, as we go. The other view, fairly popular, growing in popularity, is a preterist view, right? It comes from the Latin praetor, it means past. A preterist will read the text through the lens of saying that the majority of the prophetic text, up to chapter 20 typically, has been fulfilled in the first century with all of, with the historic fall of Jerusalem and the deconstruction of the temple. Nero would represent the beast, and we're going to 
break all this down because there may be some valid points to all this. Right? Nero represents the Antichrist, Emperor Domitian, you know, maybe fell in there somewhere. These were two guys who brought a lot of persecution against the church. That's, that's the preterist view. The, 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 the futurist view is looking forward, like what's to come. The historicist view is kind of an overlay of church history. The preterist view is looking back and saying most of this stuff already happened. And then there's an idealist view, or also known as a spiritualist view. The idealist view says that revelation is symbolic for the universal, timeless battle between good and evil that happens in every generation and in every era. In other words, they will say it's not literal events. Rather, it highlights the kind of events that will occur in every era, and it serves as an encouragement for the saints, saying that wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, to persevere and to overcome, because in the end, and Revelation says this, those who overcome are rewarded. So these are are four views. We'll put them all up on the screen with just a a short synopsis. Futurist. It's forward-looking, right? It's in the name, future. Historicist, it's in the name, right? It's a gradual unfolding of history. The preterist, it's past. The idealist is symbolic. Now, what I want you to understand is to see how whatever lens it is that you read the text through, it will change the vibe and the meaning, the interpretation of the text. Right? So if you adhere to a futurist view, you're looking forward and you're looking at world events saying, could that be the mark of the beast? This one world government, could this, could this be it? Like, is it happening? Right? And sometimes there is some anxiety, maybe a little bit of fear that comes with it. You're, you're nervous looking at future events. But if you read the text through an idealist lens, it's far less ominous. Right? It, it's symbolic. So when someone says, uh, if a futurist says, I think this person's the Antichrist, if you read it through an idealist lens, you would say, there's been hundreds of Antichrists. There's been hundreds of people who have been opposed to Jesus. And this person, if he is, if she is, it's just one of many. Now, ultimately, the interpretation of the text is going to land you, stay with me, in one of three eschatological positions, right? The study of end times. Stay with me, very academic, grab what you can, study on your own. We're all learners today. Catch where we're going. The lens determines how you read the text and how you interpret the text. If it's events to come, you're a futurist. If it's gradual unfolding, it's a historicist lens. Events of the past, it's a preterist lens. Events that are symbolic, it's an idealist lens. How you interpret the text determines what you do with that timeline and specifically how it relates to this idea of the millennium. Right? Is it figurative or literal? When is it? Are we already in it? And we are left with three eschatological positions. Stay with me. Right? This will all make sense as we unpack this. You will land on the side of an amillennialist, amillennialism, premillennialism, or postmillennialism. All of them dealing with, it's in its name, the millennium. All right? Each of these are going to take you in a different direction. The good news is they eventually all end up in the same place. But they're going to take you on a drastically different path to get you there. 
what's at stake is how you answer the big question. When does, when does Jesus return? Is it before the millennium, pre-millennium? Or is it after, post-millennialism? And this idea of amillennialism, we're going to hold off on that one because that one's just out there, all right? Have some good points, though, to it. Now, regardless of where you land, listen, listen, listen. All three positions fall within Orthodox Christianity. That is really important for you to understand. Wherever you fall in the lens that you read through the text, all of it falls within the framework of Orthodox Christianity. Meaning, I'm not telling you anything that is outside of what, what, what are the basic tenets of the church. All right? There are good, faithful, Christ-following people that are going to land on an amillennial side, and you may be a premillennialist, and, right, and we can coexist together. I told you last week when we talked about hell, the center of our belief structure is Jesus. Right? We have outer concentric rings. The outer ring is opinion. What I'm sharing with you today, it's my opinion. Now, I want you to come up with your opinion. And if your thought is, well, will you just tell me what you think? I trust you. I'll think what you think. Well, if you're going to think what I think, then what I think is I'm holding loosely to what I think. And I think you should too. Right? Because my view on this has changed. And it may change again at some point. So, amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. It's all going to make sense. Just hang on. Right? It's all dealing with, with the idea of end times all leading to the same place, uh, but they all fall within the, the, the framework of Orthodox Christianity. All right. Uh, and the reason I say they fall within the Orthodox framework of Christianity, because wherever you land, people in these camps believe that Jesus is Lord. He's the only way to heaven. They believe Jesus is coming again. He is bringing an eternal kingdom. There is a bodily resurrection, and there will be a coming judgment, right? There's agreement on that, how it gets there, is, is where things were differ. All right, so we're going to look at our first interpretive lens and kind of pack things together. We're only getting through one lens today. When I started this message on Monday, I thought I'd get through all four of them. There's just no way to get it. So we're going to get through one today. I'm hoping two next week, two the following week. And when it's done, I'm telling you, you're going to be like, I finally get it. And that's when I send you a bill. All right, now, let's keep going. We're going to look at our first interpretive lens, the futurist lens. Now, in the West, I told you this is the most familiar lens. Uh, it gets the most airtime. It's the most recognized. Oddly enough, the futurist lens, looking forward when you read the text, is the most recent addition, the most, most recent offering to the lens pile. Like the futurist idea, uh, especially when we're getting to, when we start to fall into this idea of premillennialism, this is a 19th century construct largely. Came from a guy named Darby. Uh, Darby had a disciple who was Schofield. Schofield took copious notes, wrote everything down, and then put it into the Schofield Study Bible, and that largely influenced a mass population, and it kind of swept over uh, evangelical Christianity, where most are going to fall into this futurist timeline, and we'll, we, we will break that down. Futurist timeline. As we form our timeline, we're viewing events, right, through a futurist lens. There are things looking forward, right? The text is a prophecy predicting things that have not yet happened in our generation. Uh, everything is looking forward, dealing with future events before Christ returns. So the question that we ask then is, where does this put us? Well, it puts us 
before the tribulation. All right, because we're, we're looking forward. If you're reading through a, a futurist lens, you read the things about the seven seals, the seven bowls, and the seven trumpets, and you're like, none of that has happened yet. And so we are before the tribulation, and we're waiting for the tribulation to start. And that's why there's ministries out there that try to look at world events, drop them into Scripture, and say, it's coming, get ready. And most of the time, they're not right. One day, they'll be right, but most, most of the time, they're not. Right? The, the futurist lens... Looking forward, it places us before the tribulation. What's in front of us is the tribulation, the millennium. It's still to come. Now, the term that we give to this timeline is what we said. It's premillennialism, right? The reason is because it's pre, it's before the millennium. So if, if, if this is your view, if you have a view, and it's, your view is that we haven't entered into the tribulation or, or that's still to come or, or the, the millennium is still to come, then you would fall into the camp of being a premillennialist. Again, well within the frameworks of Orthodox Christianity. It's all good, right? Uh, but, but that's what the term is. Um, as we begin to form that timeline, this is what a premillennialist would, would adhere to before the tribulation, before... The millennium. Now, the next question that someone's going to ask, well, on this timeline, when does Jesus return? Right, you've probably heard of the rapture. It's, it's, it is what premillennialists are referring to when they talk about the, the next coming of Jesus, when the church is called up into the air with a faithful rise to meet Jesus. And the majority of premillennialists hold to what is known as a pre-tribulation rapture. Right? So the arrow's going up. The church leaves. That means the majority, right, a premillennialist, premillennialist would tell you that the rapture happens before the tribulation, to which we're like, woohoo, yeah, I don't get any of that stuff, right? The church goes up, other people are left behind, and suddenly they realize, well, this sucks, right? right? It's, a, it's a pre-tribulation rapture. Are you tracking with me a little bit? Tracking with me? If you're a Tim LaHaye fan, Left Behind series, first of all, understand he made millions off of you, but that's another question. Or if you watch the movie Left Behind with Nicolas Cage, which my family watched as a comedy, just to be honest with you, because it's Nicolas Cage. Uh, not because of the material, but Nicolas Cage, right? Uh, that is based on a futurist lens, things happening in the future. And based on a pre-tribulation rapture, right? That was the whole idea. The church was taken up before the tribulation. It was the get-out-of-jail-free card. Once the church is taken, the rapture, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls occur, and all that are left go through this seven-year tribulation. The pre-millennialist believes that there are two comings of Jesus, Okay, pay attention. The one involves this secret rapture, right? Where you're, you're, you know, the, the thing of all the two guys are together and one guy's left and one person's gone. And, and, and you probably need to go back and read those scriptures, by the way. Maybe a little telling to you. Um, we'll get to that. Um, but there, there, is, there is the secret rapture where suddenly people are gone. No one saw it coming. By the way, my sweet wife, can I tell that story? She was probably seven years old. Her dad's a pastor. She lived in fear of the rapture, and one day she couldn't find her parents, 
and her brother wasn't there, and little seven-year-old Sheila, who's probably about that tall at seven years old, started calling people in the church, and she found the most holy person in the church that she could think of. It was some older lady, and she thought, if sister so-and-so was home, then the rapture didn't happen. In tears, she's calling, and I laughed at her. No. All right, so I thought that story was sweet. But there is fear that kind of comes with this, right? Because it's forward-looking. What's going to happen? Am I going to be in the rapture? Am I going to be left behind? A man made millions off of this idea of being left behind. And the fear of how do I make sure I'm not left behind. So there's two coming. The secret rapture. And then the second coming, coming after the tribulation. Right? The rapture happens before the tribulation. There's the seven years. And then the coming of Christ, the arrow's going down, the coming of Christ will happen after the tribulation, and that is where he establishes a thousand-year, literal thousand-year reign of the kingdom. So, track with me. Premillennialists, we are before the tribulation. Most believe it's a pre-tribulation rapture. The second coming, uh, the, you could maybe say the third coming, is after the tribulation, Jesus comes establish his millennium, a literal thousand years ruling and reigning, and then it gets to the judgment of evil. There's other side trails in there. Evil is judged, evil is released, eventually evil is banished, and the new creation forms, and God makes everything right. So, so track with me on this. Now the question is, how does a premillennialist get to this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture? Right? There's other passages in Scripture that may or may not speak about the rapture, and we'll discuss that in future, future messages. How does a premillennialist get here? What does the Bible say? Well, they would look at Revelation 4. Revelation 4 is before the tribulation or the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. So it occurred before all of that, pre-tribulation. And here's what it says. As uh, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice that I heard uh, speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, a few things to notice. The passage is referencing John being called up into a heavenly realm, right? It's John called up into the heavenly realm before the tribulation, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. A premillennialist might say that John symbolizes the church and that the church will be called up or raptured before the tribulation, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, right? Now, you need to determine if there is enough scripture or if there is enough proof text to build your pre-tribulation theology on. And, and we're not going to cover all of that, but you can look into it, all right? Um, I won't tell you my opinion. Yeah, I will tell you my opinion. No, I won't tell you my opinion. Uh, you'll figure it out as, as we go through the series, but you, you need to de- decide that on your own. Is that enough proof text, right? John, and we're, John is symbolizing the church to be taken up before the tribulation. Now, a futurist lens... Premillennial, pre-tribulation is the most widely held view in the Western church. Okay, You can decide on this idea of the rapture, especially a pre-tribulation rapture, 
Um, you could make a strong case that nowhere in Scripture are we promised a get-out-of-jail-free card, um, but you know, that's, that's, that's for you to decide. I will tell you this. I'm not a futurist, uh, so that may or may not surprise you. That may or may not make you angry, uh, but I will get to uh, where I land on all this, and, and it's okay to be a mixture as well on some of these, and that's, that's what you're going to find out about me. Understand this, that pre-tribulation is not the only place the rapture can go on our timeline. Go to that next slide. It, some, although considerably less, will say, hey, the rapture doesn't happen before the tribulation. Some would say the rapture going up happens in the middle of the tribulation. Right? So instead of a seven-year tribulation, there's three and a half years front, three and a half years back, the church will land on somewhere they will exist, remain for three and a half years, and then the church hits the eject button, and then the church is, is raptured, and we call this a mid-tribulation rapture. So if you're talking to someone says, say, hey, are you pre-trib, or mid-trib, or post-trib, you understand what they're saying. Is the rapture happening before the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation? So, again, the church endures part of it and then hits the eject button. Now, <laughs> to confuse things even more, premillennialism is broken into two categories because Christians can't agree on anything. And so someone's like, yeah, I'm a premillennialist, but I don't believe that. So I'm going to start my own category. And so there are, are two categories. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. There's a, there's a dispensational premillennialism. Dispensation is how God deals with the church in different ages, right? There's, there's two different opinions on that. It's a message for another time. And then there's historic premillennialism. And the primary distinguishing factors between the two schools of thought largely revolve around the nation of Israel and the church. And there is weeks of messages that we can talk about on that. Here's all I want you to know. Historic premillennialism draws its name from the fact that many of the early church teachers, scholars, fathers kind of landed here, right? Dispensational premillennialism, that's the new construct, 19th century, the guy named Darby, right? It swept the land, but it's difficult to, make, to, to find a lot of references to it throughout earlier history with, within the church. So historic premillennialism, different view on the church in Israel. It's been largely adopted by the early church scholars, early church fathers. Uh, most of them did not believe in a pre-tribulation or even a mid-tribulation. Historic premillennialists place the return of Christ after the tribulation, right? But notice it's not a rapture. Right? The arrow's not going up, the arrow's coming down. They're, they're, they would say there is no rapture, that the next coming of Jesus is the full uh, consummation of the kingdom. It's, it's, it's the fullness of Jesus coming down. And so, and so there, there is a difference on, on, on the two. All right? Premillennialism, before the rapture, or before the millennium, and then depending where you land on the rapture, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. Now, most of the time, we'll wrap this up soon, most of the time, when you hear of someone making a prediction on the return of Christ, right, they're, they're reading Revelation through a futurist lens. I hope that makes sense by now, right, because they're looking into the future for events that have not happened. And typically, more times than not, they're going to fall into the premillennial camp, right? Why are, they, why are they making predictions? Because they're looking forward, trying to determine what's next. It's a futurist viewpoint. Uh, uh, you know, and some 
have gone through great lengths to break the code, uh, to kind of have the insider information on when Jesus comes to get the band back together. And let me just add, I have no issues with premillennialist views, no issues with futurist views, right? It's all under the framework of Orthodox Christianity. My concern would be, and there are concerns in each one of them, because my opinion is none of these views are airtight, all right? My concern is, is that a futurist viewpoint always has people looking for what's next, and then they try to determine the times by inserting events into Scripture, and you can make Scripture say whatever you want if you're reading into Scripture instead of allowing Scripture to read out of itself. And so that, that's how we've got into such a huge mess, right? October 24th, 1844. Somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people gathered around the United States to watch the sky, staying up after midnight, straining to see Jesus coming out of the heavens. It was a Vermont farmer named William Miller. Undeterred by his lack of biblical knowledge, he put together uh, his, his naive ingenuity to answer the question, when is Jesus coming back? And he was convinced that his calculations said the long-awaited Messiah is coming back on October 22nd, 1844. Many people quit their jobs, closed their shops, left their fields uh, uh, unharvested, gave money away. Um, uh, there was a rush to be baptized. Legend has it, now, I don't know about this, legend has it that Miller even had robes created Right? So they all looked alike, or at least those who were with him, because if you're going to meet Jesus in the air, you want to look tight. Right? That's kind of what he was thinking. Right? Now, that night, October 22nd, 1844, spoiler alert, nothing happened. And it became known as the Great Disappointment. Do you think? <laughs> right? But Miller's not the only one. Right? I counted no less than 50, I wanted to put them on the screen, but I couldn't fit them all on the screen, right, of, of at least notable predictions of when Jesus was coming back, going all the way back to 500, right? So, so this is, he's not alone in this idea. 1988, Edgar, Edgar Wisenant, if I'm pronouncing that right, he published a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And when the rapture didn't happen, he wrote a follow-up book on 89 reasons why the rapture will be in 1989. Now, Ronald Wineland predicted Jesus would return in September 29th, 2011. His prediction failed to come true, so he moved the date to May 27, 2012. When that prediction failed, he adjusted the date to May 18th, 2013, and then finally, finally it happened. He was convicted of tax evasion and sentenced to three and a half years of prison. That's a true story. Right? Maybe, maybe that's why he was trying to get out of town. I don't know. I don't know. That's what you decide. One challenge of the future is you don't moan at me. One of the challenges of the future is you. Again, you can always make scripture say what you want it to say. The future is you is cool. I have no issues with that. But 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 practice good hermeneutics, right? Exegesis is allowing scripture to read out of itself. Eisegesis is reading into scripture what you want it to say. So we just have to be really careful or we do run the risk of running people off or scaring 15-year-old boys who are new in their faith thinking life's about to end, right? So be, be wise in that. Now, if you don't know, there are predictions on the table for the future return, 2024, 2025, 2029, 2057. So get ready for those. 
Now, here's what you need to know, and we're done. No one knows. All right? No one knows. Right? One of the things we need to ask ourselves, well, if all Scripture is inspired by God, and I believe it is, it's the plenary of Scripture, it gives us everything we need for faith and salvation, we have to ask the question, well, why would God use such apocalyptic terms? Why didn't, if he was talking about something in the future, why would he just tell us straight up, give us names and dates so it's easy, remove the ambiguity? Why structure it in such a way that's uncertain? And part of the reason is, is that Revelation is more than just about the transfer of information. It's about you trusting the story. More than that, it's about you trusting the author of the story and that he will get you through. All right, listen. That is the pre-millennial position, but there's two more that we just can't go through today. Do I have one more slide on that, Mike? The amillennialist, the post-millennialist, and that is what we will study uh, in the weeks to come. Here's a little sneak preview, right? When it comes to post-millennialism, Again, it changes how you read the text. Postmillennialists believe that the tribulations already happened and that we're living in the thousand-year millennium now. And so it radically changes how you view the text, how you interpret the text, and what you do with the text from here. We'll look at the preterist lens, which is going to read through the lens of saying most of this stuff in Revelation happened in the first century. We'll look at the idealist lens, right, the the historicist lens. What what I want you to to know is that you're going to need to do some homework on your own. I'm not here to give you the answers. I'm here to hopefully push some buttons that you're like, this was kind of interesting. Some of you are like, I hated it, right? I don't like to learn when I come to church. I just want to feel good. I hope some of you are like, I I dig it, right? I kind of learned something. And now you need to start doing a little bit of research on your own. You need to do your own Bible studies to land on where you land. All right, all right, all right, all right. There's a whole, so much more I can say. But we're going to pray. And then I hope you come back next week. uh, I'm telling you by the time it's done, you're going to understand the different positions. And then you can decide this is where I land. In the end, it all gets to the same place. And in the end, we all have the same job to do. Stand with me. All right. Some of you are like, it's time to go to Joel Olstein's church. I just, I don't know. I don't know. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we really kind of started diving in deep here. And, and um, my, my hope is that, is that something was stirred in us that maybe we, we want to start to study Scripture on our own. We want to sit down and do our own study and, and begin to learn. And, and, and as we do that, Holy Spirit, that you would just pour into us like you promise you will do as we position ourselves in front of you. So that's my prayer. As, as we study, that you would pour yourself into us and we would, in the end, look more like Jesus because that is ultimately what matters. Whenever it happens, would our goal be to look as much like Jesus as possible when the time comes that we see you face to face. May we pursue you with everything that is within us because you are worthy to be sought after and pursued. I bless you, Reveal, to find more, more, more of Jesus this week. Amen. God bless you guys. Hey, if you need my notes, sign up or shoot me an email. I'll send them off to you and uh, you can study a little bit more on your own. Don't forget to sign up for the next class.